0: Sunday. Uh, I wanted to start today with a passage of scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, and this passage is one that I have uh, alluded to, read from, uh, we've studied a little bit from over the last many months, a um, number of times. This is uh, the passage of scripture where Paul is describing the return of Christ. And at the return of Christ is another event that will happen, and it's the resurrection of the dead. And so let me just read these four verses to you to get us started here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, Paul writes, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep." He's referring there to people who have died. "...that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope." Verse 14, "...for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even even so through Jesus..." God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's referring to when Christ returns. He will return in the sky at the last trumpet sound. The skies will part, and those inhabitants of of the earth at that time will see Jesus in the sky, and he'll be returning to the earth with the souls of those who had passed on, with the souls of those who have died in Christ. He says in verse 16, two more verses here, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, verse 17, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul is, again, referring to this event that's going to take place. It's the, what theologians call the return of Christ. Also, we know that this same event will be the resurrection of the dead, the day that the Lord Jesus reconstitutes all of those uh, elements that used to be you and I um, and reconstitutes those, and they'll come up out of the ground, they'll come up out of the sea, Um, and they'll be reconstituted. Those bodies will return to your soul that returns with Jesus um, and will be reunited in your resurrection state, in your resurrection body. Um, We've been in a series looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of the dead. Paul starts out this chapter talking about, hey, look, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Here's some proof that we know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We've got all these eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after the tomb was empty. Uh, they saw Jesus, interacted with him, uh, had meals with him, all these sorts of interactions. And so he gives this proof that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so his point is, if you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, let's also believe what the Bible teaches and what the Lord Jesus himself taught, that you and I will be resurrected just the same. And so we've been traveling through uh, chapter 15 and looking at all these different uh, reasons and logic that Paul gives as to why there will be a resurrection of the dead. When we, our verse today that we come to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, starting at verse 35, it kind of begins that section. Paul is answering the question, with what kind of a body will we, will we be resurrected? Like, what's it going to be like? And so Paul's answering that question of what will the resurrection body that we get be like? Our text, again, comes from First Thessalonians chapter 15. We'll start at verse 42. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Verse 42 through 44, here we go. Paul talking about this resurrection body. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You may be seated. Um... All right, so let's just walk through these verses together. I'm going to start back at verse... Uh, actually, before I go there, I would like to read to you just one quick verse. We're going to come, come back to it here in just a little bit. And this is just a verse about perspective. This comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse, just verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is making a statement there about perspective. He's thinking about this resurrection day this return of Christ, and he's saying, look, I'm living for that day. Here are these words again. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. All right, now let's jump back to um, our passage in 1 Thessalon- Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 35, where this section where he talks about the resurrection body begins, and he quotes the question that some of the Corinthians are asking. So some of them ask right out of the gate, how are the dead raised, and then with what kind of a body will they come, with what kind of a body will they receive? So two questions there. The first question is a question about how, how's God going to do this? Like, my bits and pieces are scattered amongst here and there. My bits and pieces are decomposed, and they're part of the, you know, the worms have eaten it up. So what, how how is God going to accomplish this? And so to that, Paul says in verse 36, you foolish person. In other words, don't you know that this is the God of the universe who says he's going to accomplish this? I mean, this is the God that created everything and all life and and the whole universe. I'm sure it's within the scope of his ability, uh, Paul is saying, to to reconstitute our bodies uh, in any manner, in any way that he wants to accomplish that. And so he says, any thought otherwise is foolishness. But about the other question that you asked, about with what kind of a resurrected body do we get, he says, look, I got some responses there. He says in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Paul is clearing the decks here to state that the kind of body that we receive at the resurrection will not be that of a grouper. All right, he's saying you're not going to get a bird body. You're not going to get an animal body. You're not going to become a deer. I know some of you may be, oh, I would love to be able to run around like a gazelle. But no, that's not the kind of body that you're going to get because they'll get their own body. The body that you're going to get at the resurrection is going to be a human body that's the point that he's making here in verse 39 back in verse 37 he says what you sow is not the body that is to be but a rather a bare kernel he's comparing the resurrection body that we will receive on that day of christ's return to a seed that when it is planted in the ground that seed sprouts up and becomes what the seed was designed for for example a corn seed becomes a corn stalk a corn seed does not become an apple tree a wheat seed becomes a wheat, a, a wheat stalk. Um, it has little grains of wheat that pr- um, pop up out of that. That wheat seed does not become a tomato plant. Each of those things become what they were designed to become. And so Paul's saying the same thing with your, with your resurrected body. Your resurrected body will return to what it was, what it was designed to be uh, from the get-go. So just the same with our bodies. When God reconstitutes us, we're not going to come back as anything other than human so that's point, that's point number one. What will our resurrection body be like? It will be human. Point number two. Paul says in verse 42 that the body that we receive at the resurrection will be imperishable. Verse 42. What is sown is perishable, the one that body that we have now. But what is uh, raised, what will be raised up on that day of Christ's return, will be imperishable. If you ever go to the grocery store and you walk around the outside walls of the grocery store, not outside of the, the but you know, where all the refrigerated stuff is, that's where all the perishable items are. That's where the meats are. That's where the dairy is. That's where the, where the eggs are. That's where the, the uh, gross, you know all the, um, what do you call it? Vegetables. Thank you. That hard word to, to come up with. That's where all the produce is at, right? It's all along the outside walls of the grocery store because that's where all the perishable items are kept. The stuff that's in cans, the stuff that's in prepackaged, and, and all that sort of stuff, As all in the interior aisles of the grocery store, that's the non-perishable items. Paul is saying here that the body that we receive at the resurrection will be um, imperishable. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that the body that we have now is perishable. It's in the process of aging. Every day that goes by is one more day closer toward this earthly tent finally giving out. Uh, But the resurrection body that we get at the afterlife will never decay. It will never wear out it is imperishable. Think about that. An imperishable body means the body that we get in the afterlife will not be subject to injury. It will never exhaust. You can go run a marathon, get done, say, hey, I'd like to run another one, right? Turn it right around, and that would be great. You could do that. You can stub your toe in the afterlife, and it won't hurt a bit. Won't even bruise. Uh, The new body that we get will be absent of aches and pains. The body that we get won't be subject to bacteria or viruses. I still got a little bit more time, so hang on to that um, alarm. (laughs) That body that we get won't be subject to bacteria or viruses or disease or decay. You'll never get sick. What difference does this make to your future and to my future? So I'm answering my question a little bit early here today. We're going to come to it again here in a minute. But our future self, it means that in heaven, there will be no wheelchairs. It means in heaven, there will be no walkers. It means in heaven there will be no handicapped parking spaces because there will be no need for that kind of stuff. It will be our perfected bodies. There will be no hearing aids, no pacemakers, no insulin shots. In heaven there will be no antibiotics, there will be no drive-through pharmacies, there will be no anticoagulants, there will be no chemotherapy, no radiation treatments. Friends, in heaven there won't even be a bottle of Tylenol. Isn't that wonderful? Because there will be no need for that stuff. You'll be in your imperishable body. Amen? That's exciting. Um, our bodies will never wear out, or never decay, and never die when we get to heaven. Point number three, this new resurrection body will be free of a fallen, sinful nature. Paul writes in verse 44, the earthly body is sown a natural body, but the resurrection, at the resurrection, it will be raised a spiritual body. The word in Greek, I got a slide for you here, the word in Greek that's translated as natural is the word psuxikos. This is not a word that is describing the material or the, um, or the material aspect of man. It's referring rather to his fleshly desires, the sinful nature. It's saying that the body that we receive is a body that is cursed. It's cursed because of Adam and what happened back there in the Garden of Eden. And this body that we received has, comes with it uh, this curse, this sinful nature that we're born into the world with. Nobody has to teach a two year old to be selfish, right? they, they figure that out all on their very own. Um, it is inherent, it, becomes, it comes naturally to them. It's because we are coming to this world with a fallen, sinful nature or fleshly desires, we might say. Paul uses this word "pasuksikos" earlier in the same letter to the Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse fourteen. He says the natural, the pasuksikos person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Do you see the juxtaposition here that he's giving us? You've got the, the Spirit of God, and you've got this pasuksikos. You've got this the sinful nature side of us. He says the natural person, the sinful nature person, is not able to understand. Uh, the spirit, because they are spiritually, those things are spiritually discerned. James, in his letter to the church, writes, James chapter 3 and verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, or from above, but it is earthly. It is psuxikos. It is unspiritual. He even says it's demonic. So the stuff of the sinful nature, he says, that is not born of God. That is not born of heaven. That is born of the flesh. It is born of sin. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 44. Paul is saying that the body that we are born into here on earth, It possesses a fallen, sinful nature. The natural inclination of this flesh that we are born into is one that is constantly battling and constantly fighting with the holiness of God, with the righteousness of God. We're constantly trying to restrain our sinful nature. However, this new resurrected body, friends, will be free of that sin nature. Uh, he says still in verse 44 that the resurrected body, again, the juxtaposition. We got psuxikos on the one hand, but on the other hand, he says it will be raised. The one that we get out of the ground will be a spiritual body. Now, the word in Greek that's translated there spiritual is the word pneumatikos, which is where we get the word penuma from. And penuma is always translated in the New Testament as the word spirit. It's the word that's used to refer to the holy spirit he's saying this body that we get out of the ground is not one that's going to be immaterial or ghostly like or some sort of an apparition that's not as referred to when he says it's going to be a spiritual body he's saying it's going to be a body that is devoid of any sort of sinful nature the desire to disobey god the desire to be selfish all of that sort of stuff will be gone from this new body that we get rather it'll be a body that is driven by and a desire to obey god to please god it'll be a body that is consumed by the Holy Spirit of God—it's a pneumatikos body. He says in verse forty-eight, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust—that would be Adam—we inherited Adam's fallen sinful nature. Just as we inherited the image of Adam, similarly we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, we will be like Christ. And what was Christ like? He was like all those fruits of the Spirit. Jesus was love. He was joy. This is Galatians five verses twenty-two and twenty-three. He was peace. He was patience. He was kindness. He was gentleness. He was self-control. That will be the defining characteristics of this new body that you and I receive. Um, all right, we have identified some features here from of our resurrected body. Number one, it's going to be human. Number two, it's going to be an imperishable body. It will never wear out. And number three, it's going to be free of sinful nature. We have Holy Spirit, we will have Holy Spirit-driven instincts. Now, before we go on to our most important question. Um, I want to take a few moments here to look at two other passages of Scripture that give us some additional insights into what this body is going to be like. Um, Two other passages of Scripture. Let's take a look. First comes from um, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, beginning at verse 20. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi. And here we learn that the resurrection body that we receive will be like the body that Jesus got when he rose out of the grave. All right, so look at this verse with me, Philippians 3 and verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So the body or the return of Christ that we receive will be much like the same body that the Lord Jesus received uh, when he rose from the dead. Um. And what was that body like? Well, number one, it could pass through walls. You say, really? Yeah, actually it could. Look at John chapter uh, 20 and verse 19. It says, John, Jesus appears to the disciples there after his resurrection. This is the day, the morning of, or later in that day of the resurrection. The disciples are huddled together behind closed doors. They've heard that there's been this, Jesus is missing from the tomb. They don't understand what's happened. And it says there, reports there, John 20 and verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked... The disciples were were hiding out of fear of the Jews. So they're behind closed doors. They're worried that those Jewish people who had it in for Jesus and just stuck it to Jesus are going to do the same thing to them. If they get caught out in the streets, they get caught walking around. They're going, to say, aren't you one of his disciples? Yeah, well, we're going to put you on a cross too. And so they're concerned about this. They're behind locked doors. And then it reports, verse 19, that Jesus came and stood among them. How did he do that? The doors were locked. The windows were down. Uh, how did he get in there? I mean, did somebody bury him in the tomb with a key to the house? No, that's not what happened. It's because Jesus was able to just appear in the room in front of them, right in their presence. Luke gives an account of the same event. He writes Luke chapter 24 and verse 36. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, verse 37, but they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they saw a spirit. It was the only way they could process what they're seeing. How can you be standing here in front of us? The doors were locked, the windows were down. I know you don't have a key to this place. How is it that you've all of a sudden appeared in front of us? And so, what they thought was that they were looking at a ghost. They thought Jesus was just some sort of an apparition. But Jesus says to them, I'm not a ghost. Verse 39 See my hands and feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieve, they just, I, I'm just not so sure about this. He says, hey, look, just give me something to eat. Watch me eat. And you'll see that it won't just fall to the floor. It won't just pass through me. I'm going to eat this stuff. And so he says, verse, verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, verse 40 through 43, and he took it and ate it before them. So two more things that we learn here is not only can this body pass through walls, but it is still a physical, touchable body body. Jesus said, come and touch me. Look at the scars in my hands and my feet, the place in my side. Come and touch me, guys. I'm not just some sort of an apparition here. This is really me in the flesh. And also, we learn here that this resurrected body will be able to eat. Now, that was worth coming to church for this morning, to find out that in the afterlife, We'll be able to eat. I don't know if I I was driving down the road the other day, and Claire called me. She said, on your way home today, could you swing in by the strawberry place and get some strawberries? And so I pulled in there, and I mean, at least five or six of them disappeared before I got back to the house. But I'm excited to know that hopefully they'll have fresh-picked strawberries in heaven as well. But I'm excited to know that we'll be able to eat in heaven. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that the resurrection body will be a human body. Number two, we've learned that the resurrection body will be an imperishable body, won't wear out. And number three, we've learned that it will be free of a sinful nature. Now we've just added to it that this resurrection body will be like Jesus's body. Uh, we learned over in the Acts chapter 1 that Jesus's body actually ascended up into heaven. I don't know if we'll be able to fly, but Jesus's body at least floated up into the sky. Sounds kind of cool to me. I'll just throw that in there. Um, now, I've presented all this stuff to you here, and you can find all this stuff written in theological books. It's all interesting things. But this next piece that I'm going to share with you is just something that I have just had my own personal observations from looking at this passage of Scripture over many years. Take it or leave it. We're going to hold this thing loosely, okay? Um, You can say, Gordon, I don't know that I agree with that. Or maybe, Gordon, uh, maybe you're right on the—something for me to think about. I don't know. Take it or leave it. But here's here's the last distinguishing feature, I think, of these resurrected bodies. Okay, you ready for this one? It's kind of a big one. Maybe not. Anyhow, um, based on my observations of Scripture— I believe that the resurrection body will be absent of biological gender, biological gender, no physical features of male or female. Now, hang on before you think I've like lost my marbles here. Okay, look at a passage of scripture with me. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 23. Jesus is engaged in a debate with some theologians, and the question that they're answering is whether or not somebody will be married when they get to heaven. That's the question that's in front of Jesus. Um, and so they're talking about the afterlife. And it's a group of people, the Sadducees, who were kind of a liberal group theologically, and they didn't believe that there was an afterlife. And so it's interesting that they would be making a case against Jesus about things that happen in the afterlife, which is something that they don't believe in. Look at verse 23. It says, that same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And then they start talking about the resurrection. Anyway. I guess when it's your political enemy, you're willing to say anything in order to get, accomplish your goal. So nothing new under the sun there. But about this issue of people being married in the afterlife, y'all okay? Okie do. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious where you're going with this one. All right, Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. So Jesus answering this issue about people being married in the afterlife, okay? Here's what he teaches. Jesus says, Matthew 22 and verse 30, For in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? Why is that, Jesus? Well, because we will be like the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven are eternal, imperishable beings. I mean, They just, they, they, they roll on into eternity. They're, they don't die. And so one of the primary purposes that God has given for marriage is for procreation, is to create more of us, right? Because people are passing, passing away and we got to replace those. And God wanted to multiply the earth as well. So one of the principal purposes of marriage is to procreate. Here Jesus just tells us that when we get to heaven, there will be nobody, nobody's going to be married. Nobody's going to be getting married, nobody's going to be, be given in marriage. Doesn't mean you won't know your spouse, doesn't mean you won't walk around in heaven and enjoy heaven together with your spouse. I'm not, please don't hear me say that, because that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says here is that the marriage like we know it here in this world, that that will not be our experience in the afterlife those relationships will be there, knowledge of one another will be there, but it's just going to be different. Uh, it won't be like two people setting up shop together like they do now. Um, now, I'm going to go a step farther, and this is where we have to hold this thing loosely, okay? I'm, gonna, I'm suggesting that while the masculine and feminine parts of our personality remain, and they do, uh, our personalities are there with us when we get to heaven. People can recognize us physically as well. Um, however, I'm carrying that beyond that and with Jesus teaching here and suggesting that biological distinctions will not. So while the masculine and feminine per parts of our personality remain, that the biological distinctions that make up you and I physically will not remain. So what I'm concluding here based on Jesus teaching is that there will be no procreating in heaven. And that's clearly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30 when he talks about people not getting married when they're in heaven. Um, Again, hold that one really loosely, okay? Um, Don't, 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 just, anyway, hold it loosely. All right, that's our text for today. Now it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? I mean, you're talking about something that's going to happen after Jesus' returns. You're kind of making some, um, talking about being able to fly. I mean, what, what, what does any of this have to do with me today, with me now? It's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Flip over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. The Apostle John is having a vision of heaven. He sees the God, God the Father, seated on the throne of heaven. And here's what he describes: Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So John's got this vision of people up in heaven, and they're singing these songs. They're singing these praises to God. They're offering these praises to God, these 24 elders. Go forward to the next chapter, one more verse here, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, the rest of the hosts of heaven get caught up in what these 24 elders are doing. They're celebrating God in his presence. And they say in verse 12, they shout and sing. The hosts of heaven shout and sing, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and brought blessing. Friends, that's really exciting to me to get wrapped up in the worship of heaven. I mean, you think Chris Tomlin, you know, get-together worship services are amazing. I mean, this is going to be just off the charts. And people are just going to be so excited to be there worshiping God and praising God, um, the spirit-filled worship service. Jesus will be there. He'll be all the motivation that we need, friends. Those nail-scarred hands, they will be all the motivation that we need to just keep praising God and keep worshiping God. And so he's saying this is going to be part of our experience of heaven. And that's exciting. However... Is all that, is that what's going to be happening in heaven? Is that all? Like, like our experience of heaven is just going to be this praising God and worship service that just goes on for like 10,000 years, million years? I mean, at what point do we stop singing another round of Just As I Am so that we can end the church service and let people go off to, to lunch or wherever else it is that they need to be? Um And so that's the question is like, is that what the afterlife is going to be? Is it just going to be? Because for many people, their concept of heaven of the afterlife is just this big worship service that just goes on forever and ever and ever. Flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. This will be our last text for today. Romans 8 and 22 says, for we know, Paul's talking here about the creation. He says the whole creation has been groaning together. In the pains of childbirth until now, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Which is what? What is this adoption? What is it that we're eagerly awaiting for? He says, the redemption of our bodies. The day of Christ's return. The resurrection of the dead. We're waiting eagerly for that. Creation is waiting eagerly for that day. Notice that in talking about the resurrection of the dead, Paul also mentions the restoration of creation. Friends, God is not going to resurrect our physical bodies just so that we can stand around his throne in heaven and have a forever church service. There will be some of that, and I'm excited to be a part of it. However, the point of God resurrecting our physical bodies, is so that he can place us back in a restored, in a remade, in a a corrected physical creation. Just as we await our restored bodies, so creation awaits being restored as well. I mean, the Bible talks about children playing over the snake's hole, right? And about children uh, walking alongside the lion and petting the lion. God is going to remake this place. He's going to return it to its pre-fall state. In the meantime, creation is groaning, the Bible tells us, longing for that day of Christ's return when not only will our bodies be resurrected, but when also the Lord will remake this earth. What difference does that make to your life and to mine? Well, you've heard the statement before, let's not be so heavenly-minded that we're no... I just wanted to see if y'all are still with me. Let's not be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. In other words, all we do all day is just sit around waiting for Jesus to return. All we do all day is just sit around waiting on, on God to come and correct everything. And, and, and you know, I've got my place in heaven and I'm just, I'm just waiting on that day when I get to go be with the Lord in heaven. And meanwhile, the world around us is just in falling apart. And we just watch the world fall apart around us. Jesus is just going to remake this place, so I'm just going to be so heavenly-minded that actually I'm no earthly good. I think we all get that. But then there's the flip side of that, and this is the lot more difficult part to see, is where we become so earthly-minded that we bring no heavenly good. In other words, all of our resources and all of our energies and all of our creativity and all of our time are turned toward building up a kingdom unto ourselves, kingdoms that we cannot take with us. We try to make our present experience the most comfortable and the most fulfilling. We try to get the most out of this world that we can, and this is all for our own self gratification. There's another perspective. It's a perspective that Paul had and that he shares with us in Romans chapter eight and verse eighteen. We read it earlier. Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Friends, Jesus promises us a resurrected body, one that will, he will place in a restored creation. That day is coming. The question is, which kingdom are we living for? This one or the next? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for the perspective that your word gives us time and again. This world would have our energies, our resources, our time, our hopes heading in one direction. Lord Jesus, when we place ourselves at the feet of your truth, we discover real purpose, meaningful purpose, lasting purpose for the breath of that we take and we draw. Lord, we ask as we gather around this table this morning and are reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, the sacrifice that you went through in this week, all those years ago, Lord, that we would be a people who are grateful and also, Lord, a people who once again will devote ourselves to living our lives and spending our energies building up your kingdom. You said, Lord, you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Lord, may our lives look like that prayer. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.